For most of my life, I, I really wasn't much of a reader. I had difficulty reading. It just wasn't fun to do. It was a lot of work. And so I just didn't do it. And uh, I always wanted to be a reader. I admired people who read. And there'd be times that I'd hear someone talk about a book, and I'd say, man, I'm going to go get that book, and I'm going to read that book. And so I'd get it, and then I'd go right to chapter one, and I'd start reading, and it wouldn't take me long before I'd be lost, I'd be confused, I'd be wondering what the author's main point was. I'd even be thinking, why did he even write this book? And by the time I made it to the second chapter, maybe the third chapter on a good day, I'd give up on the book. And that was the extent of uh, most of my life when it came to reading. It's only been in the last 12 years. I'm 58. Okay, so it's only been in the last 12 years or so that I've truly become a reader. I read almost every day now, and sometimes I'm working on two or three books at the same time. I even have, if you can believe this, I even have a list of books, Matt, that I want to get to. I mean, I like to read. And as I thought about this switch, what was it that... that, that how did I go from being a non-reader to being a reader? And it got me to wondering, why the change? What was it that made the difference? Well, it's the craziest thing, because it all started when I went to seminary. One of the first books I was assigned to read was a book by this guy named Mortimer Adler. Anybody ever hear of him? Mortimer Adler. Heard of one? Yeah. Okay. He wrote this book. You ready for the title? How to read a book. Yeah. And I am telling you, it was written in 1941. And it's become a classic. And it's really helped people like me who were just really disinterested in reading. It was so helpful for me. And my biggest takeaway from the book really was the importance of just slowing down. Slow down. And get to know the book. Kind of like getting to know a person. It's simple, but it really is a profound, profound thing to do. And he suggested that you take the book and you begin by looking at the title, look at the subtitle, and just ask your question, what, what, what is he communicating in the title of the book? Why did it get my attention? And then look at the back of the book. Open it up. Look at the inside cover, the back cover. Read what people have written. Then you can go the first couple of pages and you'll find a list of accolades where people have or praise people have for the book. And all of that was just so insightful for me. And once you've done all that, then you come to the most important step. Are you guys ready for this? Read the preface. Read the intro, right? That is where the author tells you exactly why he's written the book. It's crazy, I'm here to tell you. He tells you what he's going to talk about, what he's not going to talk about. It's all listed right there. It's where the author kind of sets that hook. And he begins to draw you in to his book. And he tells you what his topic is going to be about. Crazy. 
And you know what? That's exactly what we find the Apostle John doing in his prologue of his gospel. See, this Advent season, we've been looking at the four gospels, how each speaks to the history and the mystery of the incarnation. And Matthew began his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. Remember that? Mark's gospel started with the preaching of John the Baptist. And Luke's gospel, we talked about that last week. Remember, it's written to a guy named Theophilus so that he would have a true and an accurate account of Jesus. Well, today we're going to be looking at John's gospel, and more specifically, we're going to be looking at the first 18 verses, typically referred to as the prologue or the preface of John's gospel. It's short, and it's to the point, and it contains many of the major themes that he's going to reintroduce throughout his gospel. It's rich with these theological truths. I mean rich. And It sets the stage for what John wants to most communicate. It's where he, remember, sets that hook with his main point. And this is his main point. The God of the cosmos has made himself known to us through the incarnation of Jesus. God's one and only son, Jesus, is God in the flesh. Now, I know that's mind-blowing stuff. And yet it's taken place in real time and space. It's that still truth that Terry spoke about last week. And John wants you to take this truth, embed it in your mind as you read the rest of his gospel. And so that's what we're going to do. Let's look and, uh, together and let's read through John's prologue and let's just ponder this morning all that John shares in his opening thoughts about the mystery and the history of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He starts out this way, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now right there is the history and the mystery of the incarnation woven together in these opening five verses. And theologians have pondered these verses for millennia. And so I just want you to know, it's okay to wonder how all of this has taken place. Because when you do, you'll realize it's kind of staggering stuff. But here's what John wants us to be sure about. And he wants us to know that if we're going to understand who Jesus is, then we've got to go all the way back before the beginning of the universe itself. He is the word of God, the light that brings life. He's no ordinary man, not at all. He's eternal and divine, the agent of creation that we find in the opening pages of Genesis, who was actively involved in the creation He's given life to everything that was created. Without him, nothing has ever been made. 
And that includes you and me. You see, he knitted us together while we were in our mother's womb. He saw your unformed body and even knows the number of days that you have. He's determined the time and the exact place where he wants you to live. He knows everything that there is to know about you. And now, I have to admit, all of this, when I think about it, is just a complete mystery to me how this happened. But I'm reminded of when I was in the service, we used to have this saying, we said, that's way above my pay grade, Bruce. Remember that? Way above my pay grade, right? I don't know. But just because I don't know how it actually took place, that doesn't mean it isn't true. But sometimes this truth can be hard to grasp, and I can understand how doubt can creep in. How darkness, as he writes about in those first five verses, tries to overcome this reality. And that's one reason I think that John never wants, or wants us to never lose sight of the fact that the God who created the cosmos and spoke everything into existence from nothing is fully aware of your life. He is. And in him is the light that brings life. See, later, John is going to unpack this truth later in his gospel by reminding us of the words Jesus spoke to Thomas when Tom was confused and he was flooded with everything that was going on because things weren't happening the way he thought they were going to happen. And he began to be filled with doubt. And Jesus would comfort Thomas with these words that have now become so familiar to us. I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, Jesus was wanting Tom just to understand that to know him is to know God and to have life as God intended us to live. He's telling Tom to trust me, trust me, and let me take you to the Father. It's a great story, and you can read it in John chapter 14. I just encourage you this week to take a peek at that and just sit in it for a little bit. And so with John's opening remarks here in his prologue, he's just laying the groundwork for us to trust Jesus and to walk in his light. And so we're going to keep reading. Let's look at verse 6. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. See, here again, we have the history of God being played out in a miraculous way. You know, John's elderly parents were Elizabeth. And this priest named Zechariah. And one day while Zechariah was working in the temple, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And he announced that he was going to have a son. And Zechariah, let me tell you, he, uh, he wasn't, oh, giddy, I'm excited, I'm finally going to have a son. No, he was like, how's that going to happen? See, Zechariah was in disbelief. 
But despite his disbelief, the God of the cosmos was at work in their lives. That's because it was all true. And their son, John, would be no ordinary man, not by a long shot. He was set aside by God. He was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born. Like those old prophets of old, John's mission would be to point back to point people back to God by pointing forward to Jesus. And you know, Jesus and John were only six months apart. And just like John, Jesus would come in the fullness of time at just the right moment in history some 2,000 years ago. Jesus would be born into a Jewish family. His mother, Mary, this young, really a young teenage girl, and his father, by way of adoption, was Joseph. He had brothers and sisters. His cousin was John the Baptist, right? And his extended family would include Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, his cousin John was this crazy Nazarite. Nazarite's a guy who takes this religious vow, and he lived in the wilderness, didn't even live in the city. And he only ate honey and locusts. We know that because people talked about that. Because it was odd. And his clothes weren't the current fashion of the day. But instead they were this throwback to like the prophets of old. They were made of camel hair. They were real coarse. And he wore this big belt around his waist. And not on, on top of just the way he looked and what he ate. He was an in-your-face kind of guy. He didn't mind calling you out. He was intense, and people were puzzled and perplexed by him. At the same time, people were drawn to him and his message. And then when it comes to Jesus and his immediate family, I mean, come on. When you read it, if you really just sit in it for a little bit, you got to start wondering, man, did people know? Did people know that Mary got pregnant before she was married? Was she the center of the town's gossip? Did people whisper when she walked by? Oh, that's her. It's a small town. And what about Joseph? Did people think he was just a fool? What a fool. What a fool for Mary and this girl. And Zechariah, he was old, man. He was an old priest who had a crazy son. And so can we really take him at his word? Was he even relevant anymore? Did people just want to write him off? Did they talk about him behind his back because of his crazy family? I don't know. I don't really know. But what I do know is people are people, and they were no different then as they are today. And yet God would make himself known to this family this family in a real and tangible way. Each one would believe and trust in God's word. And to me, that is just incredible. The God of the cosmos would come down, take on a human body, and enters as a member of a family. A family, a family probably 
a lot like yours and a lot like mine. So let's keep reading. Verse 9 says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet all who would receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor human's decision or husband's will, but born of God. See, this is the central theme of John's gospel, of all the gospels. Jesus, the Son of God in flesh and blood, is now among us. And even though he created the world and everything that was in it, the world would not recognize him. Even people who would have known him the best didn't recognize him. You know, during his ministry, Jesus would return to his hometown, just this little podunk town, this little podunk place that wasn't much of anything. And at first, when, when he came back, folks were really amazed at his wisdom and the miracles that he had performed. They're kind of blown away by this. But then when they realized it was Jesus and they had grown up with him, well, everything changed. And can you hear him? They're kind of like, well, we know this guy. We know his parents. His dad's a carpenter. I mean, he came to my house a couple years ago and fixed my door. Some kids probably thought, man, we played soccer together, right? They knew him. And now he's this rogue preacher. He didn't go to preaching school. He's this rogue preacher out there preaching this stuff. Who is he to teach us? So just forget about him. He's nobody special. They just wanted to move on. See, they were too close to the situation. They couldn't bring themselves to believe his message. Yet, the good news, John tells us, didn't stop, right? It continued because some would believe. It started with his disciples. These are some guys that Jesus purposely invested his life into. And then there was the Samaritan woman. You remember her? He met her at a well. He was tired and was getting a drink of water. And she'd go on to tell everybody she met what Jesus had done for her. And then there was that government official. You read about him. He, he's that guy that his son was sick and dying. and He was desperate to do whatever he could to save his son's life. All had life-changing encounters with Jesus. And you know what? Encounters like these have continued over the last 2,000 years as the kingdom of God has spread worldwide, each encounter with its own unique story. And most of us here today have had an encounter with Jesus that's changed our lives, changed our lives forever. In fact, we've been born again, and we're part of his kingdom. Verse 17 is just wonderful. It says, the word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I love that verse because it is the bluff, the bottom line up front. Jesus, God incarnate, fully divine, fully human, two natures in one person, has made it possible for us to know God more fully. Think about that. You know, Moses, not even Moses, who God spoke with like a friend, got to fully see God. Moses would only get a glimpse of him. Moses desired to, but God said, you can't. But God was gracious to him, and he hides Moses in the cleft of a rock, and then he and all his glory passes by. He actually even covers, it says he covers Moses with his hands as he walks by, and then he allows Moses just to glimpse his backside. You can read about that in Exodus 33. It's incredible. But what John wants us to know is now with Jesus coming, we can know with certainty that we have seen God's glory, a glory full of grace and truth that's revealed in Jesus. You know, Paul writes the same thing. Paul said, Christ, talking about Jesus, is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. And so think about that. This baby boy whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, born to this teenage mother from this nowhere backwater place, the adopted son of a carpenter, is not only the image of God, But he is God's one true incarnation. See, he is the fulfillment, if you will, of God's plan of redemption that allows us to live as whole people in this this broken and this fractured world that we currently live in. You see, Jesus is the good news that John the Baptist was even shouting about in the wilderness. Look at verse 15. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one that many have shouted about. I mean, we could add to the list. We could add Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, and all the other prophets of old who were pointing to the coming Messiah. All of them were looking to his arrival. And now he has come. See, he's the source of all blessing. John wants us to get that. In him, we received, did you catch that? Grace upon grace. I don't know about you, but do you need a little grace in your life right now? I do. When we come to Jesus, 
You know, he dishes out grace in huge heaping servings. And so John's point is that Jesus is the fullness of grace. And those who know him, hey, you're going to get showered in his grace. That's true. In verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in close relationship with the Father, has made him known. He's made him known. And with these words, John closes out his prologue. You see how he set that hook? He set that hook. He does it right from the start. And now he's inviting you to just keep reading the story that he's going to tell in the remaining 21 chapters of his gospel. It's an invitation to be known and to know who the Father is and the Son, who together are the one true God. You know, in his book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Trevin Wax uh, writes about the beautiful complexity of truth. The beautiful complexity of truth. And it fits well with our Advent theme, uh, the Incarnation's Mystery and History. And it's a book that uh, reminds us, in his book rather, he reminds us that the gospel is simple enough for a child to grasp, but yet it's so complex that the greatest scholars can only scratch the surface of his glory. And he uses the children's hymn, Jesus Loves me to illustrate his point. Listen to what he writes. Jesus loves me. Jesus, the eternal son of God, the one who is both God and man, the Messiah of Israel, whom we confess as our Savior, Lord, loves. Oh, how he loves me. Who am I? I'm a human being made in the image of God. I'm marked and marred by sin in need of salvation. I'm a wretch and a masterpiece all bundled up in one. This I know. How do we know? What does it mean to know? The Bible tells me so. These scriptures are authority They're divinely inspired and delivered to us. They tell us how we can know. And so can you see that glorious complexity behind the beautiful simplicity of the gospel just found in this simple child's hymn? Trevin goes on to say that we could write thousands of pages expounding every word in this children's hymn. I think he's right. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
See, this is the mystery and the history of Jesus, the Son of God, seamlessly woven and tied together. The incarnation is the single most important event in history, and it happened in the most ordinary way. Some 2,000 years ago, in real time and space, it's simple enough that a child can grasp. My grandson grasped that. He was baptized here early this morning. He's eight. He grasped it. And yet it's so complex that the greatest scholars can only scratch the surface of his glory. See, the gospel, the good news, is that God became like us to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And all he asks is that we believe him, that we place our love and our trust in him, that we transfer our trust from self to him. John will write later in his gospel, he'll write, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's true. And so that's the invitation this morning. Will you do that? Will you believe? Many in this room probably already have. You've trusted Christ. So if you've already placed your trust in Jesus, as we pray here and we sing here in just a moment, just be present in the awe and the wonder of this Advent season as you just contemplate who Jesus is. And think about his arrival at just the right time in history. Think about how he came to you, presented himself to you, and you came to know him. Think about how different your life would be without him in it. And then let that fill you with joy and peace this Advent season. And if you're, like Terry said last week, if you're investigating who Jesus is and you haven't placed your trust in him, I just want to challenge you to wrestle with the truth of who Jesus really is. John's testimony is true. God has made himself known in his one and only son, Jesus. Will you trust in him? Will you trust in the fullness of his grace and truth? And will you let him transform your life into a child of God? We're going to pray. Will you join me? Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, Father, and your one and only Son, King Jesus. Thank you that you have given us evidence to place our trust in you. And we ask that you would just deepen our faith as we walk with you and that you would show us your faithfulness every day. Amen.